Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. You get lucky, and we are lucky on surveillance today. Scheduled was Edward Hyman. He was, of course, Evercore vice chairman and uh, iconic with his ISI and his daily economic reports. What you don't know is Mr. Hyman knows the Newtonian mechanics out of engineering at Texas and wandered by uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology a few years ago. He joins us this morning. And, of course, I should mention, Ed, you're a board member of the China Institute. You are an internationalist. Let me let me show you the president's tweet of 10 minutes ago. Bring it up if you would. And this is absolutely extraordinary. When a country is losing many billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. Example, when we are down 100 billion with a certain country, they get cute. Don't trade anymore. We win big. It's easy. You and I read Jacob Viner a million years ago. This is not easy, is it? Tom, good to see you. You do a great job on this show. But uh, I didn't expect this. And I find it really scary. How will adjust your view on the American economy? Uh, i got to see how it plays out. But the problem is not what we do. It's what they do. It's what retaliation comes back with. And once you go down this road, uh, it gets uh, problematic because you can go tit for tat. Uh, so... Uh, I just have to sort of go through these next few days and sure. see what the tit for tat is, but uh, it's, it's pretty bad. Within the news flow last night, the wonderful news that the vice chairman of economics and monetary theory may be Richard Clarida of Columbia University. All of us can agree that is a, an intelligent appointment uh, for the Fed. How does the Fed respond if we implement these trade, uh, these trade tariffs against these nations? The only thing I can go back to is the 1929, Smoot-Hawley, and then the, the, yep. the Depression. That was sort of my forming views on this topic. And so I've always assumed that, you know, trade wars were really bad. And then uh, we we're talking about Milton Friedman a minute ago. Uh, well, know, Nixon's trade, we showed in the last hour, Nixon's yep. speech on 10 percent tariffs of 1971. Uh, but, uh, you know, after uh, when you when you were in 1929, uh, the equivalent of the Fed funds rate was 6%, 6% was pretty high, and the yield curve inverted, and then you had a depression. Uh, so I would think uh, that if we start to get a trade war, uh, that it'll put pressure on the Fed to be more cautious on raising rates. It'll be difficult because you could get inflation picking up from higher prices, although if it's just steel, it's not that big of a piece of the economy. It's not that big a deal, but then and there's any number of ways to go here. I've got a Paul Krugman comment on this from weeks ago. You assume maybe strong dollar for a bit, and then does this devolve into lower economic growth and a weak dollar policy that the president doesn't see? Uh, I don't know. It's too early to tell. Fair. I can't tell whether it's uh, you know, more posturing uh, on the administration's part or not, mm-hmm. but I didn't expect this. And it's uh, unsettling. Uh, 
and introduces well, a new uncertainty that we didn't have and then puts the Fed into play that wasn't there before. Here's what I want to do. I want to go out with this morning must read. We've got so much going on today. The news flow is extraordinary. What do you have for me, Riley? Bring up one of the essays that our team has worked on. This is Navarro. No, this is Paul Krugman. Excuse me. We've got Paul Krugman up. Let's stay with that. This is a, a really wonderful essay. How does a country make its eventual transition from trade deficit to trade surplus? A Trump tariff that people expect to see received by a future sane president would drive the dollar up temporarily, but the prospect of future depreciation would inhibit investments. This is so important, Ed Hyman, that Professor Krugman says this is a one-off, that if this president goes through with this, later presidents will reverse these tariffs as proposed. Do you have faith in that? No. First, I'm living in the present, and I deal with markets and investors, and uh, Maybe the next president will do it, but I got to get through this this year and next well, year, and uh, so it's it's a it's a dif- difficult situation. I will say uh, that the U.S. economy is doing exceedingly well. I, I saw your chart this morning yeah. that looks exceedingly bad, uh, but uh, no. But you mentioned disposable income doing really quite well. Income and uh, the un- un- unemployment claims this week extraordinary. It, yeah. Okay, well, let's come back. Ed Hyman with us with just, just as I said, folks, amazing news flow. Massive shout out from me and Francine to our team. It's blown everything up in the last 18 hours. This is what gives us goosebumps here at Bloomberg Surveillance. When we have guests of esteem and always of controversy who really make an effort to join us on historic days like today. Jeffrey Sachs is at Columbia University. He has been way out front on the dumbing down of America. He has been way out front on any debate of climate change, whether you agree or disagree with him. But far more is his foundation of international economics. Uh, He is again at Columbia uh, University and joins us from Bogota, Colombia this morning. Professor Sachs, thank you so much for the effort to join us um, this morning. 20 years ago, you wrote two essays for foreign policy. One was A Brief History of Panic, and the other was Unlocking the Mysteries of Globalization. Is President Trump's trade action his effort and a good effort against the new globalization? This is uh, one of the most reckless policies, Tom, uh, one can imagine, and it is going to have major adverse uh, reverberations, as it is around the world. Uh, We probably shed maybe a a trillion dollars of uh, stock market capitalization in the last 24 hours. That is a pretty good sign of uh, market sentiment uh, and the view of uh, what Trump has done. He's smashing the global trade rules, and um, it's very, very dangerous. We have done a little bit of the history, Professor Sachs, the history that you're expert in this morning, going back to the courage of Sir Robert Peel and the Corn Laws of 1842, call it Nixon's effort in 1971 on a 10% import tax. Let's go to Nixon. What did Jeff Sachs learn in studying the Nixon tariffs of the early 70s? Well, when uh, Nixon uh, uh, not only uh, raised the tariffs but uh, broke the Bretton Woods uh, exchange rate system unilaterally, it led to uh, a decade of uh, chaos. Uh, and 
Uh, I would go back to uh, 1930, in fact, Tom, uh, and you know the history well of the Holly Smoot tariff of uh, July 1930. That was uh, another unilateral U.S. action, uh, a smash in the face of uh, world trade, and it had devastating consequences for pushing us uh, deeper into what became depression, prolonging the Great Depression, uh, intensifying it. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that that's the inevitable consequence of this dumb move of, of, uh, of uh, Trump, but this is a dumb, dangerous, reckless move, and it's based on it's based on a level of economic uh, illiteracy that is absolutely shocking and that is shown by his uh, morning tweets. Uh, he really believes that if you are running a trade deficit, it means that you're being swindled by the surplus countries. It's a kind of uh, it's a kind of illiteracy you can't even imagine uh, that is now a view held by this confused man who happens to be president of the United States. And then he tweets this morning that. A, a trade war is the simplest thing in the world to win, because he also views everything as winners and losers, whereas trade is about win-win, and closing trade is about lose-lose. Yeah. So I'm, I'm astounded, Tom, that we don't have uh, any institutional break right now. Uh, I would expect, and I would... Uh, well, we'll see. I would expect people like Gary Cohen to leave the White House because this is right. really want to be associated <clears throat> well, on that uh, with this kind of shocking uh, behavior. On that note, let me bring in my colleague, Pim Fox, well, Prof- Jeffrey Sachs of yeah, Columbia. Yeah, Professor Sachs, uh, just to play devil's mm-hmm. advocate here, is it possible that this is uh, part and parcel of a negotiating tactic and that what uh, tariffs can be imposed, tariffs can be removed, and that there will be uh, further negotiations that we don't know about, but that this is a new tactic in the way that uh, the administration is indeed dealing with what it perceives to be unfair trade practices uh, against the United States? Well, I know what it perceives to be unfair trade practices. Donald Trump thinks, as he even wrote this morning, since we're running a trade deficit against nearly everybody, we must be being cheated by nearly everybody. But it's a kind of, duh, uh, why are we running a trade deficit against everybody? Well, that's because we don't save in our country. We have a saving investment deficit. Uh, we borrow from the rest of the world. And um, his very way of posing the question exposes the silliness of it, as if every country that we run a bilateral trade deficit is somehow doing us wrong. He, he just doesn't get it. Uh, maybe it won't spiral out of control, though, uh, and, and China has been extremely mature in its response which is just to say we hope the U.S. does not undermine the international trade rules. The European Union was uh, far more direct, saying uh, that there will, of course, have to be retaliation uh, and that this is uh, outrageous. Uh, Many others have noted that it is a complete break of post-World War II practice to invoke national security to 
slam against the international trade rules. So the answer, Tim, is yes, maybe it won't be so bad in the end because some grown-up someplace will uh, turn this off. But not because there's anything clever in this, just because this is an idiotic move that is uh, very dangerous and and may get tamped down. Because most of his advisors are, are telling him, that this is a dangerous move. Well, that, that is Most tr- of the Republican Most, Congress is right. telling him that this is a dangerous move. Jeffrey Sachs with us from Bogota, Colombia. We are honored, Professor Sachs, at your effort to be with us. And there is a rumor once at Columbia that Sachs was so angry teaching trade economics to a graduate class that he took a copy of Doug Irwin's Against the Tide and threw it by some guy's ear and hit the wall, and he said, shut up and read this this weekend. Jeff Sachs, as you know, Douglas Irwin at Dartmouth wrote a classic decades ago, Against the Tide. You and I can dip into that with President Trump and learn about trade. Let's begin with the English mercantilist literature. Jacob Viner wrote the classic equity uh, essay on this. Is America now is mercantilist with President Trump as they were in England many years ago? Well, yes. Uh, Trump has uh, some uh, strange idea, uh, first of all, that um, uh, again, if, if you're running a trade deficit, you're being cheated. So this is his uh, first point. Second point, and this is also part of uh, this, uh, uh, the, the terrible worldview uh, that um, the United States is both in a position to and should act to crush China. Uh, the China is uh, the big threat, uh, so we have to somehow... Now, uh, stop our cooperation and trade with China. That's, a, of course, a subtext uh, of all of this as well. These are incredibly naive views, but worse than naive, they're, they're very dangerous. And uh, I think what the markets uh, are signaling basically uh, immediately 2% off uh, global equities yesterday and today. Uh, that's a uh, about uh, a trillion dollars of uh, market yeah. loss. <laughs> but this is just a stupid idea, uh, which I think is uh, what's well, playing out right now. Let's move forward to this conversation with Professor Sachs. And I want to make clear, I'm going to send out across my social media Against the Tide, an intellectual history of trade by the good professor from Dartmouth. I read it years ago, and it, it's one of those books, Pim Fox. It was written 20, 25 years ago. Doug Irwin, I think, was like 22 years old. And, and it's an extraordinary book. Pim Fox, why don't you jump in with Professor Sachs? Well, I just want to understand, Professor Sachs, maybe the history of these uh, tariffs and the tariff reductions that took place because of the World Trade Organization and whether the consequences of lowering industrial tariffs uh, was something that was not foreseen because it seemed as though the plan to reduce agriculture trade restrictions uh, were not really fully understood either. Well, I think the reductions of the trade barriers expanded trade and expanded the world economy. Uh, what they also did was shift uh, labor markets and income distribution within the United States. They were especially good for capital, especially good for high tech. And uh, if we were a, 
a fair society, we would be sharing the benefits of this expanded U.S. and world economy more fairly. But there's nothing untoward about what happened with trade. Trade expanded the world economy just as, as it should. And if you try to close down trade, well, we'll close down a, a, an important part of world economic growth. And that's why the markets are down so sharply right now, because this is bad news for mm-hmm. the world economy. Jeff, how should Democrats respond? There's going to be a roaring battle over this. But what is the intelligent free trade response of Democrats as they are so fractious this 2018? Well, Democrats uh, have also had this protectionist streak, of course, and some Democrats in the Midwest have already said, this is good, it'll protect our steel industry. This is a very naive uh, politics. Uh, A smart approach for both parties would be open trade and fairness in our society, making sure we have good education, good skills, help for those who are... uh, are, are hurt by uh, international trade, and, and those are real groups. But since so many are benefited, uh, the winners can help the losers. That's the first principle of international trade, going back to David Ricardo uh, and uh, two centuries ago, and Paul Nielsen a century ago. So the, the basic point should be for both Democrats and Republicans. The international trading system has been good for the world, it's been good for peace, it's been good for the U.S. economy, it's been good for the global economy, but, of course, all functioning market economies need to ensure fairness, need to ensure investments in skills and infrastructure, and so we need that kind of balance. We don't have any balance right now. We have a president railing against the world and... uh, possibly triggering a worldwide reaction, which would be extremely dangerous for everybody, uh, and, and uh, is quite possibly going to happen. Well, we have the protectionists uh, who uh, aim for you know very narrow gains, uh, and people should remember economic okay. history that protectionism has, has been a disaster. Jeff? Uh, unilateralism has been a disaster. Okay, Jeff Sachs, thank you so much. We really appreciate it from Bogota, Colombia uh, this morning. What is sporting is futures as we speak new lows for the day, three days down in a row. That was a great band, three days down. Um, and uh, futures negative 22, Dow futures negative 285 right now. John Farrell, would you suggest that the break we saw this morning was off the tweet you're going to read right now? Yeah, we were soft and then we got a whole lot softer when this one came out on Twitter from the President of the United States. When a country is losing many billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. Trade wars are the one thing people are concerned about this morning. And when the president says they're good and they're easy to win, well, it's going to hide in concern. And you saw that reflected in the market very quickly. Our team working on getting in a great set of guests, many of them waking up into this as it was happening uh, last evening. Right now, Mark Chandler with us, thrilled to have him with us with the Brown Brothers. Harriman, easy to win. Uh, John, uh, Mark, Mark Chandler, how do you win or lose a trade war? Do you need artillery? Yeah, no, so I think here's how I would read this, is that I sort of take uh, Trump seriously and his art of the deal. 
And I think about like a, I want I was going to buy my son a car for he's in college doing good doing well. I was going to get him a car. We we had a used car lot, and a car lot dealer comes up to us after my son picks out the car, and the first thing I do is complain about the car. I complain about everything about it, and then my son kicks me. He says to me, but Dad, I want to buy that car. I said, yes, this is negotiations, and I think this is what Trump is doing. It's, it's a bluster, and, which is a right. lot of these kind of things that he says. is mostly bluster. A trade war is not easy to win. It's not desirable, and it's not right. clear that we're going to trigger a trade war. Mark, you are perfect to talk to us about with your sense of political history and folding it into economics. Moments ago, the President of the United States, a short tweet, we must protect our country and our workers— our steel industry is in bad shape. If you don't have steel, you don't have a country. That's in all caps. If you don't have steel, you don't have a country. Mark Chandler, within your books, is this, is this a president steeped in nostalgia, or is that an accurate phrase for America 2030? Yes, I can't, I can't really go along with it, but I, here, here's what I would think the focus should be is think about a country like Canada. So we get, the U.S. gets about a sixth of its steel imports from Canada, but the U.S. exports half of our steel to Canada. Canada says they run a $2 billion a year trade deficit with the U.S. on steel, and Canada has been recognized by U.S. law as part of the U.S. national technology industrial base for national defense. So what's produced in Canada and what's produced in our allies, shouldn't that count for production for the U.S.? And I think that this is why the national security issue is so interesting and why it needs to be explored just the way I would, I would hope that some mayors in the U.S., mayors yeah. of U.S. cities, explore eminent domain. These are like areas of law that could be, could be used to, have some, to, to do some good. And so I, I think with this, there's unknown, there's un, like unclear legal area about national, trade, national security and trade. And hopefully, by, yeah. by challenging it like this, it gets clear that countries cannot use these kinds of pretenses for protectionism. Mark, bottom line, when Tom read out those comments from the President of the United States, I didn't think about economics. I didn't think about the markets. I just thought about politics. If you don't have steel, you don't have a country... That sounds like a campaign message. That's not an economic policy, is it? That's a campaign message. This is politics. Yeah, exactly. I think it's mostly about politics. That's the, that's the unfortunate thing for me is that we have two, you can break down the economy two parts, consumers and producers. And the, the, these kind of protectionism favors producers over consumers. And yet we're more of a nation of consumers of these types of things. How well does this play with the base this morning, Mark? I don't think the base is going to be affected by this. I think that, the, that Trump has a solid third, maybe a little bit more people who will vote for him, almost regardless of what he does, as long as it's seen to be like sticking a finger in the eye of the elite or of the traditions or of establishment. But will it reduce economic output even by tens of points? And again, Mark, I agree with you that the specific threats maybe aren't that important, but there's got to be knock-on effects in retaliation, correct? There could be, but I think that the countries are going to hold off retaliating to go through the WTO. But I do agree with you, Tom, that the economy, I sort of would think that whether you look at the 12-month moving average of non-farm payrolls, you look at the 12-month moving average of auto sales, you look at the higher rates of delinquency on credit cards, and we've got a lot of symptoms already of late-cycle economic activity. Yeah. And these tariffs and this kind of uncertainty might be enough just well, to push us further along that curve. Let's recast this quickly. I know John Farrell wants to dive in. What is your 12-month call on you? U.S. GDP that you're using off your FX desk at Brown Brothers Harriman. 
Well, we're sort of penciling in not far from what the Fed is. The Fed, I think, is 2.8 for this year, and we're about 2.5. Slightly Powell. slower growth. Excuse me? Chairman Powell wakes up Tuesday morning full of optimism and confidence, goes in front of the House and says how great things are going to be through this year and how much better things are since December. How's Chairman Powell feeling at the end of the week? Yeah, I think he probably gives himself good marks for his presentation to Congress, uh, having corrected the, 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 stuff, the stuff about the overheating and that there's no, uh, uh, no signs of uh, wage pressures accelerating. But I think this tariff stuff is uh, scary, from, especially from people who embrace like, the uh, free markets and the, sort of the global liberal trading system. Powell, I think, is part of that tradition. Chairman Powell, we thought, was going to be a low-rates guy and soft on regulation. I don't see those two boxes being ticked over these last two days of testimony, Mark. Do you? I don't know. I'm not so sure. I mean, the markets, I mean, for me, it's taken Powell to convince the market that Yellen was right. Yellen told us in December those dot plots showed us three rate hikes this year. The market finally came around to it on Powell's testimony on Tuesday. Mark Chandler, Jeffrey Sachs will join us later of Columbia University, an acclaimed international economist. And he's talked about, and this goes more to, more to ecology, the economics of a crowded planet. Is the planet so different now, so crowded, that the template of trade of George Bush Sr. can't work now? I don't know. I, I sort of wonder about like this uh, overcrowdedness. If a, if a mother goes to her cupboard, yeah, uh, she's trying to feed three children, and she finds that she has only two pork chops, does she have too many children? And I think that's really the issue. I, I think that's hard for me to conceive of. Uh, you know, we've got the real problem in the West, in the U.S., Europe, Japan, uh, China, our demographics, we're just not producing fast enough. The parts of the world that are producing are Africa and some parts of East Asia, some parts of Latin America. The yeah. poorer parts are reproducing while the, while the older uh, European, the high-wage economies are weakening. And I think that this is, you know, maybe uh, having fewer people is one way to release some ecological damage. Mark Chan, or, the final question for you before we have to let you go. More importantly, the base case for you from listening to you for the last 20 minutes or so is that remain calm. Things are going to be okay. This won't escalate. If that's the case, as this market falls out of bed this Friday morning, what would you be looking to pick up? What pieces would you be looking to pick up as this market falls out of bed? No, it's a good question. I think that at Broadway we try to emphasize the value investing. And so I'd be looking at those stocks. I'd have a list of stocks that I think if there's a big sell-off, they have good value. And so those are those that have been beaten up pretty badly, and it might be, uh, so I'd be looking at valuation, value stocks rather than growth stocks. Mark Chandler, thank you so much. We have tried all week to get perspective on China that has shifted from a two-term to permanence of President Xi to, of course, the arch themes of the President of the United States on mercantilist trade. What an honor to have Steve Sang with us. Uh, earlier this week, and now we do better. Carrie Brown is with us of Chatham House and the Laos Center uh, China Institute at King's College, who is without question the definitive author across the various leaders of China in the modern age. There are five, six, eight, ten books, including China's World, What Does China Want? What a perfect lead in Carrie Brown. Uh, to where we are this morning, what does China want with a mercantilist trade policy of the President of the United States? Well, um, I think they probably were expecting something like this. Um, when Trump went to China late last year, the only discordant note really was that he said, 
the imbalances in trade were things he wasn't happy about. And, of course, he's always appealing to his base. That's something that Chinese leaders know very well. And this is a sort of symbolic move. As I understand it, the reports show that only 2% of the steel, for instance, in the United States is from China. So, I mean, it's going to probably have a bigger impact on UK or European exporters to the United States. But, I mean, for China, I think it's probably going to be interpreted as, yeah, this presidency is really kind of serious and keen about this issue, and they have got to give some kind of leeway back, what shape that leeway takes. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find out soon enough, I imagine. Paul Krugman, in an essay after the election, uh, uh, makes clear that one theme is people wait out President Trump. Is President Xi's plan to wait out this president for whatever is on the other side? I think China's going at a faster sort of velocity. I mean, they got the 100th uh, you know, anniversary of the 100th year anniversary of the Communist Party in 2021. It's a big, big moment that will uh, maybe uh, Trump will have gone by then, maybe, uh, you know, not. Um, so, uh, you know, they're not going to kind of disrupt their plans uh, by, you know, the American presidential circle. What they will do, though, I think, is to make sure that they have enough to give Trump to look like he's doing what he said he would do for his base back in the U.S. They'll probably, maybe quite soon, open up some of the sectors that are protected a little bit in China. Um, They'll kind of, you know, be able to incrementally do... They're in the position of having quite a bit to give away in an odd way. They have hoarded all sorts of goodies, and I think now they realize, okay, we'd better give something back. And um, that rebalancing, I think, will be the story of the next year or two. The thing is whether it satisfies, uh, you know, people in particularly America with Trump and elsewhere in the world because of these imbalances, these trade imbalances. Professor Brown, I wonder if you could speak to the issue of President Xi Jinping of China, the removal of the two-term limit on his presidency, and maybe twin that with the concept of stability and the reaction of Western leaders to this move in China. So the presidency is not really a powerful position. It's a symbolic position. So this, again, is also a declaration of intent more than anything. And I think it's signaling that this may be a perpetual leadership. Uh, for stability, that means we see a lot of changes in the world. Of course, democracies, I think, in China are regarded as being more unstable than ever before. And China is this sort of bulwark of, you know, kind of stability and stable leadership. So the problem really with that is, of course, that everything ends at the sort of desk of Xi Jinping, that highly centralized leadership, lack of a real successor, as in Russia in a similar sort of situation, is you know, kind of probably okay now because, you know, she is obviously operating and functioning fine. But there's this big question of what were to happen should that not be the case, should, for instance, he be unable to kind of operate or whether there'll be some kind of, you know, kind of big change. Uh, Centralised leadership, of course, when the weather is good and everything is looking okay is fine. But when there's more complex issues coming along and there's blame going around is not so fine. So it's a big gamble. So does this mean that Western leaders are okay with Xi Jinping because they see China as an area of stability compared to much of the rest of the world? I think at the moment, all the um, distraction from Brexit in Europe, from you know the Trump presidency in the United States, from all of the instability in the Middle East, the problems with Russia... I mean, having a China which is at least not kind of, uh, you know, unstable, doesn't look unstable, is relatively economically uh, okay at the moment, uh, you know, kind of looks like it's going to be geopolitically quite kind of cooperative in areas, most areas, as long as they don't impact on its, you know, complete, its very closest region. 
Uh, I think most Western leaders would probably think, yes, this is okay. I mean, we don't want to have to worry about another, you know, big, big unknown. I think the only problem really is we can be complacent. China's a complicated place. It's going through extremely difficult, difficult transition. Uh, there's a lot that could go wrong. Levels of debt are high. Um, you know, there's a kind of lot that's not really known about the stability of the Chinese system. We may be kind of banking too much on Mr. Xi being our kind of, you know, best bet for a stable sort of, you know, China. Right. An unstable China would be a massive problem. Kerry, thank you so much. We really look forward to speaking to you again and, of course, visiting with you uh, in our London stu- uh, studios. Professor Brown, uh, legendary at Chatham House, where I'm sure will be writing up uh, this weekend. I really can't say enough about his consistent output uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.